second lesson for this Lord today comes from the Gospel according to Luke. We will be reading six verses from chapter 3, and again I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read this morning. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lasanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. If there is uh, one distinctive aspect of this season of the year, it must be the music. Christmas hymns like Oiled World, Silent Night, O Little Town of Bethlehem, O Come, All Ye Faithful, are hymns for which we seldom need to open our hymnals. So deeply ingrained in our hearts and minds are the words that we know them by heart. And when the music begins prior to Thanksgiving on many radio broadcasts, we certainly have lots and lots of time to memorize them all. Of course, we also hear a great deal of, if you will pardon the expression, secular Christmas music at the same time. Have yourself a merry let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Which is easy to sing if you live in Florida. <laughs> Jingle bells and white Christmas and Frosty the Snowman and Silver Bells. And while I suppose they add something to the season, for many they do not particularly enlighten us as to the real reason for the season. Although I must admit that there is nothing quite like hearing Andrea Bocelli sing Santa Claus is coming to town with his operatic. <laughs> but 80 years ago, this coming Tuesday, December 7th, 1941, the naval fleet in Pearl Harbor was attacked and we became directly and totally involved in World War II. War is always a terrible time and no one feels the impact more than the families of our servicemen and women. And two years into that war, in October of 1943, Bing Crosby recorded a secular Christmas song that became an instant success. I'll be home for Christmas. And it touched the hearts of soldiers and their families unlike any other song of that era. Even to this day, it is considered one of our favorites for many of us know what it's like to be separated from family and friends during the holidays, and that sometimes the only way we can ever hope to be together is in our thoughts. 
even though travel has improved by leaps and bounds over the last few millennia, there are still challenges in reaching home. Bad weather, construction projects, canceled flights, the expense of it all, work-related issues, and now it appears that you may need a clean bill of health just to cross state lines. I don't know if that will hold or not. But I'm guessing that there will be more than a few folks calling their parents and saying, you know, we've decided to start a new tradition this year and just stay home so you can send gift cards. Now don't get me wrong, I understand these are all first world problems. There is no comparison to the challenges that would have confronted a first century traveler attempting to reach a particular Destination. Not only were the elements just as harsh then, but travelers had to contend with highway robbers and wild animals and equipment failures without any assistance from AAA. They also had the issue of road quality. While the Roman Empire did a wonderful job of engineering highways that still endure today in some places, uh, there was a limit to how far they went. And so in places like... Palestine, for instance, roads were little more than rocky paths that were uneven, subject to water erosion, and ruts created by animals, and uh, carts slogging their way through a rainstorm. About the only time their roads were treated as something that we might refer to as maintenance was when a city became aware of the visitation of a dignitary. In a case like that, they would send people out to fill in the ruts, to smooth out the rough places, to do what they could to make the last few miles leading into their city not so bumpy and bone-jarring, so as to improve the mood of their honored guests. It was a way to throw out a welcome mat and provide an indication that their guest was expected and greatly anticipated. What do you do if God has commissioned you to prepare the way for the most powerful, most influential, most dynamic person the world would ever meet? That was the task that was given to John, the son of Zechariah, when he was in the wilderness. How do you even begin to fulfill such a responsibility? Where and how do you begin? Since you're not part of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, you have no credibility with them. City officials are not likely to pay attention to you because you live in the outlying desert regions. They have no reason to believe your claims that they should get the highways ready for the approach of the most anticipated personage of all time. But is a smooth highway even the most appropriate indicator to the Messiah that he is welcome in your midst? What could a person do to indicate to the Christ that he was welcomed and expected? John begins by standing in the wilderness and opening his mouth and crying out to an empty landscape, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Can you picture yourself choosing the wilderness as your starting point? What could possibly 
govern your thinking to the degree that you would choose to fulfill your task by standing in the wilderness proclaiming a message that no one was near to hear. A solid argument could certainly be made for not beginning there, but choosing instead a major population center. In New York City, for example, a person could present their message to thousands of people a day just by preaching on a downtown street corner at noon. So why go to some deserted spot in the wilderness? Why go where the majority of people are not to begin preparations for the coming of the kingdom of God? Part of the reason certainly had to do with John's agenda of baptizing those who were motivated to repent of their sins. You need a river for that. So he's around the desert areas near Jordan. But I wonder if there's not something else about the wilderness that serves the purpose of leveling things out in order to receive the King of Kings. I wonder if there is not something about being in the wilderness that is conducive to facing ourselves and to hearing God. I heard of a church youth group that had a weekend retreat that they entitled Unplug, Alone with Jesus for 48 hours. And when the youth director was asked the meaning of the title, she said, we can do nothing with these kids unless we first get them unplugged from their devices. Until we can get them unplugged for at least 48 hours, there's nowhere to find enough room to speak to them about Christ. And I'm not too sure that it's much different for their parents. When William Willimon was the dean of the chapel at Duke University, he was once entertaining a minister friend from Africa. And the friend had been through some terrible ordeals in his country, including chaotic, violent, political upheaval and unrest. He had even spent time in jail himself for his views and for his faith. And so during his time in America, Willimon provided him with the royal treatment, as we like to say. When the time arrived for his friend to return to his country, the African minister told Willimon that he would be in prayer for his ministry and the difficulties that he faced here in America. Well, this surprised the dean of the chapel. He wondered what his African friend was talking about. And so he asked him, and he said, There is just there's just so much here. You have so much freedom, so many things. What's left to offer people? What needs do they have for which the gospel could be fulfillment? I I have great respect for those of you who preach the gospel and who minister in the situation of North America. There is so much, so much fulfillment and so little emptiness. The gospel feeds upon emptiness. Or to put it another way, the gospel is most effective when the hearer recognizes his or her need. So perhaps the setting of the wilderness is a most appropriate place in which to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. Maybe we hear God better when we are in a wilderness, when we are unplugged from 
the world and our attention is not distracted. When we're in the wilderness facing the mighty loss that darken our valleys to the point that we are much afraid. When we take inventory and realize that we possess little that can help us battle the spiritual forces that plague us. When we hunger for something that will genuinely fill and satisfy our souls. When we survey the landscape of this world and see that what it offers is transitory and we come to the same conclusion as King Solomon that all is vanity. Perhaps if we are sensing a dissatisfaction with the plethora of stuff that makes up our world, we should seek out the quiet of the wilderness and we will hear anew the voice of the Lord inviting us to come home by way of repentance. The message that John presented to those that were curious enough to leave their familiar surroundings and adventure into the desert region was one that spoke of our need to turn away from our sinful pursuits and chart a course that would follow the one who made us. John's message was one that exposed the hypocrisy of our fragile justifications to keep running away from God rather than surrendering to his sovereignty. John's message was designed to awaken us from spiritual death and introduce us to the Messiah whom the prophet Isaiah called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And through this about face, this repentance, it is possible to find the spiritual meaning we crave. The odd thing about this season of the year, which should cause us to remember the one whom God sent to save us. Many people drive themselves crazy with the preparations that are not truly preparatory. The decorations, the gift buying, the baking, the traveling, and all of the rest can be hugely distracting. Some years ago I came across the story of a woman who was simply beside herself as she was trying to get it all done one day in a large department store. She was quite the picture, pushing a stroller with a fussy child in it, with another toddler that was tugging at her skirt, asking for one more thing. She had enough bundles that she really needed a horse to make her way through the store. And at one point she had to switch floors, and so when the elevator doors opened, it was already extremely full, but she managed to wedge her way in. And out of frustration and in in an attempt to be funny, she said, I don't know who started this whole Christmas thing, but he ought to be found, strung up, and shot. That muffled laughter from many. And a quiet voice in the back of the elevator said, Don't worry, you've already crucified him. Needless to say, the rest of the elevator ride was awfully quiet. But that's the issue, is it not? 
The one who came at Christmas, the one who John proclaimed as the salvation of God, we rebelliously crucified so as to keep him from reigning over us. But that's not the way home. We don't find what our souls long for by rebelling against the one whom God sent to us. We find our way home by preparing the way of the Lord, by making his way to our hearts a straight shot and unencumbered pathway that does not involve circuitous routes weaving their way around our preconditions and expectations. We find our way home by preparing ourselves for the arrival of the most awesome person to have ever walked the face of the earth, and we do that. By surrendering our pride, turning away from our sin, and turning our face towards Him. For He is the way home. Jesus said, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So here's the question. Have you found your way home? Have you found your way home? not, will you come home? By faith and genuine repentance, will you receive this one whom God has sent for your salvation? The Gospel writer Luke reads from the prophet Isaiah these words concerning John, but what he does not include are the words that come before that. Isaiah chapter 40 begins this way. God saying to his people, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. See, God does not invite us to come to the Son without this, the situation already being settled. The invitation is to come unto Him because He's already paid the price. So will you come? Let me invite you to buy your name.